0: I'm Professor Lucy Rogers, the inventor with a sense of fun. I've judged fighting machines on robot wars, written a book on rocket science, and even performed stand-up comedy. But now I have a new challenge. Design Spark want me to find out how everyday tech is helping people and places do extraordinary things. From saving bees to unlocking a sixth sense, just how are they giving themselves the engineering edge?
1: Phases. Discovery clears the
0: tower. Oh wow, this is amazing. I'm watching one of NASA's rocket launches on virtual reality, and I am right on the I am right by it, and I can look around, and oh, it's going, it's going up. Oh, it's fantastic. And I can look around and I can see the grass around me just swaying uh, with the force of this blast. Abs- that's not part of a rocket. That, that's my phone. Oh, that's my producer, Tiffany. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Lucy. Watching rocket launches again? Well, yes, it's good. You know, not everything in space is actually rocket science. What do you mean? I heard of students launching everyday tech into space with NASA and I want you to track them down for this episode. Okay, students launching everyday tech. Mm -hmm. I'm on it. I've been scouring the web and I've managed to track down a former university student who's actually sent some everyday tech up into space. Julie Cox was on the team at Northwest Nazarene University and they built a CubeSat that NASA then launched. And what her team was working on was actually amazing. The everyday tech they used could help future-proof some of our satellites. Hi, Julie. It's it's lovely to speak with you today. Yes, sure. You created a small satellite that went into space. Can you tell me a bit about it, please? So I worked with a small team at my university
2: to create RIFSAT. It's RFT satellite, stands for Radio Frequency Tag. CubeSats, which what we work on, they are measured in U's. So one U is a unit and it's 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres. So it's essentially this long rectangle uh, where you can just put any signs in it as long as it So um, they fit together like Lego
0: blocks, do they?
2: Yeah, essentially. Okay. So this is a 3U satellite, which means it's about 30 centimeters by 10 by 10 centimeters. So it's pretty small. And it uh, was used as a tech demo to demonstrate radio frequency communication
0: in space. How does it work? How do you use these RF tags?
2: A lot of us are already familiar with RF tags. Think about like key cards going into like buildings. So that is an example of like RF communication. So we wanted to see how it would hold up in low Earth orbit. So how this works is that we have an antenna and we have an RF tag. So our antenna will power up in the satellite and it will send energy to this RF tag. So a tag is passive, so it doesn't have a battery and it doesn't have a wire, which is a really cool technology. So once this antenna is sending energy to this tag, it then powers up and then it harvests this data from a temperature sensor that's already on this tag And then it uses backscatter communication, meaning that it's still using this energy to send back the data to this antenna. So there we harvest data and then that data can be sent.
0: So you've got within your 30 centimeters, you've got one that's saying, hey, what's your reading? And one that's saying, Mm -hmm. hey, my reading is this.
2: Right, exactly. So we are just demonstrating that we can successfully take this
0: RF communication and use it and and still within that one little satellite but you're hoping then mm-hmm. that it would you'd be able to do that on bigger on bigger satellites that's exactly right by using
2: this demo and we can see that this technology works then we can use it for other applications so since these tags are passive so you don't have to hook them up to things you don't have to have a battery attached to them they just work from the energy from other antennas uh-huh you can essentially put a tag on like the ISS and then measure the structure like remotely So you can measure the strain or the acceleration or temperature or ions Uh all remotely. So that's a really big step to be able to do that.
0: So you've got the something is producing energy. It's harvesting it. It's Mm -hmm. saying, okay, I've got enough energy to take this reading to tell you who I am and send that back without actually having to have a battery myself.
2: Right. That's exactly it.
0: Brilliant. You say you can put them on the International Space Station, you can say what the strain is. How important is that going to be? Very important. It also depends on your application. A big issue
2: with sending things in space is cost, for example. Like, you don't want something big, you don't want something bulky, you don't want a lot of mass. And these tags are so thin, they're flexible, and they're very light. So if instead of sending up a battery pack, which could be 500 grams... Just on itself to do a lot of work, then you have wires. And then, in theory, you can even have to have like astronauts assemble something. Instead, you could just put this tag onto something that's already going up in space, or even just assemble it there and then remotely send energy. So then, this makes things a lot easier, um, takes up less time and then less effort. So then, in theory, like an astronaut isn't sticking a probe out a window instead you can just have this rf tag
0: and do they last forever that's a really good question (laughs) (laughs) they're gonna last longer than a battery though
2: oh yeah like years and years and years i mean Uh think of like a key card how you can have that for like your full career at a workplace so Yes, they will last a very long time. Even these satellites, um, when they're up, they can last thirty odd years just in orbit, floating around. The demo doesn't last that long, <laughs> yeah, but it will. Like the um, materials will hold up.
0: And, and I just want to get in my head that the so these um, RF tags are the same as we have on to open doors, right? Um, and we have to get on the underground in the UK, the Oyster card, mm-hmm. um, th- all that sort of stuff it is all on the same RF.
2: Right. So again, like if you have your like card um, and you're scanning it in, it's taking that energy from like that like black box antenna to read your credentials or like what money you have on your card and then send back.
0: Brilliant. When did you know that NASA were actually going to send up your satellite? So you must have filled in the ground and sort of like sent it off with fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. So we were supposed to launch around Christmas of 2018
2: and then we ended up launching in July of 2019.
0: And how did that feel watching that go up?
2: really good it's really amazing to think that something like with your name on it that you helped build is now still in orbit floating around
0: and um, was it successful
2: yes it was successful did it do everything you wanted yes uh powered up it did everything right and then we got positive data back
0: brilliant so can I take you back to the building it and testing it what happened there what, what so you've, you've built it in your lab and you think yeah this is great but you know, to go up on a rocket, there's an awful mm-hmm. lot of forces involved in in, yes. in in traveling up. What tests do they have to do then? A few big
2: ones. We call them all environmental tests. And one of them is a vibration test. So we did this down at NASA Ames. And we take our satellite, we put it in a launch box, which is just a metal box that the launch provider provides. And then it is bolted down onto this big vibe table. And a frequency is sent through it to see if it will break upon launch. Mm-hmm. And it turns out ours did. So, (laughs) yes. And this is kind of the last step before you send off your satellite. And we found that some parts that we hadn't designed, so they were from vendors, they were breaking. So that was a big change that we had to modify in a new lab, decide if we could take off extra solar panels, which we did Uh since we were conservative at the beginning. So that was a big test. It was quite challenging, but again, it all worked out. So where's your CubeSat now? It's still in low Earth orbit, so it's about 500 kilometers above us now. Mm-hmm. And it'll be floating around for quite some time until Earth pulls it back in. And once it does, it will just burn up in the atmosphere. A shooting star you can wave at? Essentially, yes. <laughs> you can track satellites on different apps so you can see like, when they'll be above you.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, how nice. To just know that something with your name on it is up there. Right. (laughs) Something you helped build is, it's overhead now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So NASA are going to use RF tags? On the
2: projects I'm on, I'm not aware of any, but especially with the successful tech, I believe they will. So I heard that there are some floating around, but ours was a little bit more unique. We did it at a different frequency. So we did like a 5.8 gigahertz frequency, so to my knowledge currently there are not 5.8 gigahertz frequency RF tags
0: yet but hope so.
2: Hope so. <laughs> yes. Is it still working up there? It is not on because at least to get data because data costs. So it's same like with the cell phone plan to get oh, yeah. data from satellites down to earth it costs money <laughs> like per like kilobyte or megabyte or however.
0: So like like me phoning to the States on my mobile phone. Right, exactly. Phoning space is even more expensive.
2: Yes, because you're (laughs) just paying for this data to be like transferred through satellites. So my project, um, we didn't have the money to keep it up for a long time. (laughs) So we did our, I believe it was a six week mission just around there. And then after that, it was powered off. And this other vendor company we worked with called Near Space Launch they then took over the satellite to use it for their own data to see how their components were holding up Mm -hmm. in low Earth orbit.
0: And you're now working at NASA?
2: Yes. My resume was flagged because of this project, and now I'm working on CubeSats again.
0: Lovely. Thanks ever so much, Julie. It's been really fascinating. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's great that an RFID tag that I can use in, in my card that gets me on public transport or can open doors for security can be used in space to save the need for a power source on a satellite. So the power comes from the main satellite and can just beam to these little satellites and giving it enough energy so that it can take the sensor readings and then beam the information back so the little CubeSat can be, yeah, power-free. It's great. I'm phoning up Scott Higginbotham at NASA because he's the person who's been working with student groups to launch their projects into space. And I'm just so excited to find out what other student groups have launched with NASA and how this could all help the future of NASA's space research. Thanks for joining me today, Scott. My pleasure. You're involved with the CubeSat student competition that NASA runs. Can you tell me a little bit more about it, please?
1: Absolutely. I'm involved with the CubeSat launch initiative, which is a way by which student organizations, academic institutions, nonprofits and NASA centers can build a CubeSat and we will launch it for free. As long as that spacecraft meets certain criteria, it is aligned with a NASA technology, science, or education strategic objective. Uh-huh. And that institution can show that they have the resources and are willing and able to see it through to the end and build their satellite. And if they do, we'll launch it.
0: So what kind of requirements are required for these students? I mean, can it be
1: any student? Well, we've actually worked with elementary schools here in the United oh, wow. States. And uh, junior the, so highs, they're the little ones, the little ones, <laughs> high school, um, all the way up, mostly colleges, uh-huh. um, also some professional organizations like the amateur satellite organization that's part of the amateur radio community, mm-hmm. and then NASA centers. Uh, sometimes NASA centers will use a CubeSat as a way to train young engineers on what it's like to put together uh-huh. and test and build and launch and operate a satellite.
0: So how many CubeSats have you launched?
1: Well, so far today, we have launched 109 different cube sets into orbit.
0: Wow! I can just imagine the faces of the 109 <laughs> groups of, of of children and others
1: uh, so excited by this. That's part of the fun: watching <laughs> them get excited and learn from the experience, and uh, hopefully then come back and work for us someday.
0: All right. So it's not just you know just for the benefit of the students.
1: Oh, absolutely. We. We get things out of this. We get the, uh, obviously, from an educational perspective, it helps the uh, students out there in America who want to work in airspace to uh, get involved early to find out what they're excited about and get that experience that will then lend to them getting jobs in the future. Mm -hmm. But for us, we also get the benefit of the technology that they demonstrate or the science that they collect during those missions. They do have an obligation to share that with us.
0: So NASA actually gets a scientific return out this.
1: Yes, we do. And uh, we also get to demonstrate, you know, new technologies that we want to see to use in our bigger satellites in the future. Uh-huh. We can go test them in a CubeSat in a relatively inexpensive way and then prove that technology, raise its technology readiness level up to a point where we can then go fly it on a bigger, much more expensive spacecraft.
0: So have you got any examples of something that you want to like test small scale?
1: Well, yeah, we had a mission a few years ago called Griffix. That uh, was built around launching a small detector chip that we wanted for imaging purposes, looking at the Earth's surface. Okay, yep. And it was something that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California wanted to fly on a much bigger, much more expensive mission in the future. Uh, so we, they actually had a, a, a university in California build a small 3U satellite that could carry that chip. And go demonstrate it. So
0: the three three U means it's
1: three units, and the unit is ten by ten by ten centimeters. And the smallest satellite that we launch is a one U or one unit, ten centimeters on a side. That was the original CubeSat that was designed and, and it, you know developed by two professors in California in the nineteen nineties. And, um, and the most normal size or typical size that we fly these days is three units. So it's 30 centimeters long by 10 by 10, about the size of a loaf of bread. So in that satellite that was built, there was this chip. And it was a relatively inexpensive way to go demonstrate that chip in the space environment before we invested the hundreds of millions of dollars to put it in the bigger satellite.
0: Brilliant. I spoke with Julie earlier. Uh, she was a student on one of the teams who sent up a CubeSat. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she talked about the use of RF tags on their CubeSat. Why would an RF tag benefit NASA?
1: Well, what they were trying to demonstrate with RFTSat was the ability to, to talk to sensors on your satellite remotely via the RF ID tag. And by being able to send a command to that tag, which also sends power to that tag, to power the sensors that are in the location of that tag, and then have that tag send the information back to the main computer on the spacecraft, it allows you to to collect data wirelessly without having to build a harness that goes out and carries those electrical signals to and from that particular sensor. And in the long run, that could allow us to build lighter, more clever designs.
0: So it's actually... Some inexpensive tech that in all supermarkets and things (laughs) that NASA are using. I mean, it's it's not, in my mind's eye, everything NASA does is so expensive. Putting (laughs) a satellite into space is, is so expensive.
1: We try to find ways to do things in a more cheap way wherever we can, and that allows us to do more stuff. So the less we spend on certain things, the more we can go spend on other things. And so if we can find a simple, elegant, cheap solution to a problem, we're always looking for that.
0: So what else has NASA learnt from other CubeSat projects?
1: Well, let's see. The first thing that I would say that we've learned is that there is a broad spectrum of capabilities out there in academia. <laughs> some teams do some fairly simple spacecraft, some do very sophisticated spacecraft. Uh-huh. On all of them, they run on the energy of the enthusiasm of the students. And that's one of the infectious things that 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 we enjoy because we get to participate, we get to teach and help them learn as they go along the way. And that's a lot of fun in addition to them getting the benefit out of it. We have demonstrated a number of different interesting technologies that might be of use to NASA in the future on both small and larger spacecraft. We've uh, looked at propulsion systems, all different manners, shapes, and sizes of propulsion systems, communication systems using lasers, Mm -hmm. um, using high-frequency RF, various types of instrumentation that can then be scaled up to use on both Earth-observing spacecraft and astronomical spacecraft, and uh, importantly, in today's environment, deorbit devices—small systems that can bring your spacecraft back into the Earth's atmosphere quickly once its life has been expended. That way, we're not leaving junk in space uh-huh. to potentially collide with other stuff.
0: So, in NASA, is really—it's a win-win, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely! It sure is. For the modest investment that we make in this initiative, we get a tremendous return back, not only in the science and the tech that we get to go gather, but also in the educational benefit that our academic institutions receive.
0: Yeah, it's all been uh, really, really good. Thanks, Scott. Um, I'm so impressed that you no, know, it's not just the technology; it's the enthusiasm of the people that are actually, yeah, driving force behind that. People like you at NASA,
1: but as also the students. Absolutely, I've been working with NASA for 33 years, and this is some of the most fun that I've had <laughs> because you know I get to see the excitement through other other people's eyes. I get to help bring that next generation of rocket scientists, you know, into the fold and teach them the ropes and help them then ultimately replace me. Thanks ever so much for joining me today, Scott. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: It was great learning from Scott all the ways that students are working with NASA. And I love what Julie's team was able to do with the simple RFID tag. So I'm going to try some of that tech out for myself. Having thought about the RFID tags in space and what they can be used for, I've had a thought that maybe I could use them around the home. I want to get more information from something that's dumb. I've done Internet of Things things, but they have to be plugged in or battery powered and connected to the internet. I would really like to just put a sticker on something, but be able to react with it. And with RFID, you can do that. So I've got a few stickers and um, a key ring with an RFID in it. And I've actually programmed them to do things around my house. Let me show you. I have got boxes and boxes of stuff in my lab, and uh, some of them I can see through, but some of them I can't. And instead of having to label every box and put it on each side, because sometimes you know the box goes back, back to front, I'm putting an RFID tag on some of these boxes so that when I scan them, it just tells me what's in it. So here goes.
1: Seething, teeming, crawling, swarming, writhing serpents, also known as the cable box.
0: (laughs) That's the cable box and it's quite right. Now that I've worked out how to make these NFC reading shortcuts, I've got loads of ideas. We're heading into my bedroom because on the bed head, I have put an RFID tag so that I can put my phone up to it and
1: 13 degrees Celsius and mostly cloudy.
0: (laughs) So my phone reads the RFID tag, goes onto the internet, grabs the current weather and then speaks the weather to me. So, you know, if it's a dark morning and I haven't quite got my eyes open, I can grab my phone without having to read anything. I can just wave it over the tag.
1: 13 degrees Celsius and mostly cloudy.
0: And it tells me what the weather is. Having done something sort of useful, I thought I'd have a go at something fun. Enki, Enki come. You're a good girl, you're a good dog, good girl. Now let me see your collar. Let me scan your collar. This is a dog, specifically, this is Enki dog. <laughs> this is a dog, specifically, it's Enki. And now this last one is is just for pure Lucy entertainment. I have got a coaster on my desk for my mug of tea, my cupper, my cup of tea. If I scan the coaster with my phone, it automatically sends out a tweet that says copper question mark. So basically, I'm inviting the whole of the Twitter sphere, the whole of the internet, to see if they'd like a cup of tea. So let's have a go. Scan it. Now open up my Twitter. <laughs> Sam Scam has said, um, gosh, yes, put Skettle on. Thanks for the reminder. At Robert underscore Watson. Ooh, yes, please. Okay, maybe not just for my entertainment, but it's for the entertainment of those on Twitter as well. What fun. These RFID tags are so cool and I can see so many future uses for them. But this really has got me wondering, what other ways is everyday tech being used in space exploration? I wanted a perspective from an educator on the other side of the world. So I'm calling up Hiroaki Akiyama. He's a professor of planetary science and space development at Wakayama University in Japan. Hi Hiroaki, thanks for joining me today.
3: Hi, how do you?
0: I'm good, thanks. I've been learning about CubeSats. Mm-hmm. How have you seen these being used?
3: So, the main purpose of the CubeSat is uh, education. But uh, recently we use a uh, 3U size or 6U size satellite. And this size is enough size to take some pictures and uh, uh, using the communication satellites.
0: And you've been using some other kind of tech to get into space.
3: Uh, stratospheric barrel is a very good tool for education and the study of our atmospheres. The size is about uh, three metre three meter size or five metre sizes. So
0: these these balloons going up into the stratosphere.
3: About 30 or 40 kilometres altitude.
0: 30 or 40 kilometres up, right. Yeah. And, and you say there's three to five metres diameter?
3: Yeah, the diameter is about 3 metres. Uh, wow. But but uh, <laughs> about the 30 or 40 uh, kilometres, that is the balloon's diameter is about 10 metres or 20 metres.
0: Oh, so and, have you, yeah, they expand as they go up because yeah, of pressure. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. They can take photos, they can take cameras up. What else are they looking at? What are they monitoring?
3: We are monitoring the the station of the ground and the station of the atmospheres.
0: These balloons, they're just for use on Earth, yeah? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. But the stratosphere, Spheric fields. the pressure of the atmosphere is like the Mars. So, if you studied about the balloons on the Earth, it can be used for the sky of the Mars.
0: Ah, so we can use these balloons on Mars as well because the pressure, th- there's atmosphere on Mars. Mm. Yeah. And are you using any kind of other technology to help your students do space research?
3: Uh, So, uh, sometimes we use uh, hybrid Mm rockets. Usually, the rocket uses fire powders, but the hybrid rocket uses plastics for fuel. This type of rocket, the student can be used very safely. It's because it's not fire powders and it's uh, pressure is not so high. So, uh, that kind of rocket is very uh, easy to use it.
0: All oh, right. So, because you're mixing two different things, you've got the plastic as the as the fuel, yes, and then right. um, an oxidizer. Is that a gas? Or yeah,
3: oxidizer liquid. Liquid 20 Uh huh. Yeah.
0: And and so because those two will mix, mm-hmm. the pressures aren't quite as hu- don't have to be as high, and so it's safer for students to use. Yes, that's
3: right. Yeah.
0: What kind of plastics are you using? Where's that from?
3: This is uh, just plastics. I like the ABS. Uh, so the plastic is a very normal plastic.
0: Oh, so the ABS that I probably I could use in a three D printer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's absolutely amazing that you know not just um, I've I cubesats mm-hmm. that've got some everyday technology in, but mm-hmm. these balloons mm-hmm. and you know plastic in in rockets. <laughs> mm-hmm. All this helping students learn how to put things into space mm-hmm. and monitor yeah, the Earth.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is the first steps of studying the space development. It's because uh-huh. usually students only study, only reading or uh, viewing that kind of technology, but a uh, CubeSat, solar-centric balloons, and the hybrid rocket, uh, students can make by themselves. It's very important things.
0: So they're actually getting their hands on it and they're doing yeah, it themselves. That's right. Yeah, not, it's not just in books.
3: That's right. Hands-on training is a very important to our space development, yes.
0: That's been fascinating. Thank you very much, Hiroaki. You're
3: welcome.
1: Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port, for the last time, it's voyage at an end.
0: Listening to NASA's recordings from space flights has always inspired me, but I'm so much more inspired now after learning how some of the advances in space research are being pushed by everyday tech. When I was a student, when I was a child, Space and rocket science, that was just done by governments that you you had to be um, the best of the best to to get into that. But nowadays, NASA is working with students and students are designing things to put on CubeSats, so tiny little satellites that can go up into space. It's a win-win with everyday technology. Now must be time for an ice cream. The Engineering Edge was a Why Did the Chicken? production for Design Spark. It was hosted by Professor Lucy Rogers and produced by Tiffany Cassidy, with Dan Page as the executive producer. Special thanks to our guests, Julie Cox, Scott Higginbotham, and Hiroaki Akiyama. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please do three nice things for us. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and tell a friend. For more episodes and bonus content, head to designsparkcom forward slash podcasts.